Hello and welcome to the Master's Voice, the podcast series on MediaBrief.com. As you know, MVP, the Master's Voice podcast series, is based on conversations with MVPs, most valued players, and professionals across important sectors of the industry. I'm your host and friend Pawan Archawla, and with me today is someone truly distinguished, Dr. Mukund Rajan, Chairman of EQube Investment Advisors. Mukund, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pawan. Thanks for having me on the show. It is indeed a pleasure for me, Mukund. So, Mukund, before we continue, and I'm really looking forward to this because what EQube does and what you have done for a long time and done some of the most wonderful things with truly amazing corporates and other entities. So, first, let me quickly introduce you. Read your profile for the benefit of youngsters who might not really be too aware of what you've done. So, for their benefit, here goes. Dr. Mukund Rajan is chairman of EQube Investment Advisors, a first-of-its-kind platform created in 2019 to catalyze environment, social, and governance ESG changes in corporate India. Prior to this, Mukund held a number of senior executive positions through his 23-year career with the Tata Group, where he served as the first brand custodian of the Tata Group, chief ethics officer of the group, chairman of the Tata Global Sustainability Council, and member. of the group executive council at tata sons mukund served on the boards of various tata companies including tata teleservices tata communications tata sia airlines and tata aig dr mukund rajan serves as the chairperson of the environment committee of the federation of indian chambers of commerce and industry which is fiki and is a member of the council of management of the forum of free enterprise In 2007, the World Economic Forum honored Dr. Rajan as a young global leader. Mukund was also part of the inaugural class of the Confederation of Indian Industry (CII) Aspen Institute India Leadership Initiative. Dr. Rajan graduated from the B.Tech program at the Indian Institute of Technology (IIT) Delhi in 1989. He completed a master's and doctorate in international relations on a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford University. His doctoral dissertation. Global Environmental Politics was published by Oxford University Press in 1996 and his second book The Brand Custodian My Years with the Tatas was published by Harper Collins in 2019 His third book on corporate responsibility and ESG titled Outlast How ESG Can Benefit Your Business co-authored with Dr Colonel Rajiv Kumar has just been published recently by Harper Collins So that my listeners is the stellar professional and thinker Dr Mukund Rajan chairman of EQube Investment Advisors. So Mukund welcome back to the show and let's get on with our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Looking forward. Right Mukund ESG has become a buzzword today it demands and deserves the most authentic and sincere emotional and other investments from corporates and individuals. and then there are several corporates that have clambered aboard the ESG and purpose driven comms brand wagon literally kicked on to it due to the worst kind of fomo and of course there are the genuinely motivated corporates also begins so what is your advice mukund to both these categories of corporates on how to approach invest in and demonstrate a committed approach to ESG purpose etc What should they bear in mind at all times to ensure that it is indeed a real commitment? So, Pavan, I, I think this whole thematic of ESG is now upon us in a major way with multiple stakeholders really driving the agenda very strongly. Hmm. I don't think there is going to be much room in the future for companies that aren't. authentically as you mentioned <laughs> uh, embracing the ESG agenda right and doing whatever needs to be done to demonstrate that they have a strong ESG narrative in place hmm. put out the data that people can validate their assertions around ESG with hmm. and show that they have a road map towards continuous improvement in india for instance very soon uh, from next year on a mandatory basis and in fact from this fiscal on a voluntary basis the securities and exchange board of india has required the top 1000 listed companies to produce what is called a business responsibility and sustainability report hmm. which is imbued with 
whole series of ESG related considerations. It's going to be very hard for companies to get away with less than ideal commitments, less than ideal reportage, and to think that they can just, in a sense, present uh, a, a narrative which may not be backed up by real data and real evidence on the ground. They're going to be policy institutes, equity analysts, non-profits, and the government, and a whole bunch of other stakeholders watching very carefully to see whether the disclosures that corporates make are in line with their pronouncements. And there is serious money now that is tracking all of this. If you look at ESG-related investing, it is the fastest growing asset category in the world today. Mm. Today, there is something like $43 trillion of funds that are based on ESG performance-related investing. There are funds that command over $120 trillion of capital Mm. that have committed to pursuing ESG principles Mm. under what are called the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment. And in India, you're seeing the impact of all of this now beginning to take root. So I think both the companies that have already been doing it, all power to them, and they need to do better going forward Mm. because there are many new issues that are coming up, the most significant of which is, of course, global warming and climate change and therefore carbon emissions reduction in the context of that. Mm. And the companies that haven't taken this seriously but think they can get away with, you know, slick publications and what is often now termed greenwashing, Mm. I think we'll very soon discover that the market can see through this. So I think in everyone's interest, it's important that there is greater awareness of the new dispensation uh, around ESG, the new commitments that stakeholders are expecting companies to make, and the regulatory environment is going to get stricter uh, over time. So in their own best interest, I think all these companies need to get with the program and need to start doing what the best companies are doing, which is putting in place ESG-related governance right at the top, starting with the board, cascading that across the organization, Hmm. and ensuring there's full alignment between what it is that you say and promise and what it is that you actually do. Excellent, excellent. That's a really quick walkthrough on the essentials and you know it's also a bit of a warning to everybody that the systems all around are now equipped and trained and educated to spot the fakers uh, amongst the genuine ones absolutely and that was just dumping the whole thing down from my side but i think the writing is indeed on the wall mukund absolutely Mukund, your first book was published in 1996 and I understand this was possibly the first book on India's policy on the issue of global warming and climate change. And these environmental challenges are clearly now very relevant. So tell us what your book was about, the one that you published in 1996, uh, Oxford University Press. So Pavan, this uh, book's title was Global Environmental Politics, India and the North-South Politics of Global Environmental Issues. Mm -hmm. And what interested me most about global environmental issues, these include issues like climate change and global warming, as well as ozone depletion, loss of biodiversity. What's common to all of these issues is that no one country on its own can resolve these issues. Uh, you need the collaboration of all countries to find a sensible long-term resolution. Take the issue of global warming. Today, India is the third largest greenhouse gas producer in the world. There is no solution possible for the challenge of climate change and global warming if India does not participate in finding the resolution for that problem. So, politics that I was trying to examine was whether, given the significant differences in standards of living, between the developed and the developing worlds, Hmm. would the developing countries, which now suddenly were being appealed to for that collaboration in finding solutions to these problems, Hmm. would they actually use this offer of support and cooperation as a bargaining chip Hmm. to leverage some concessions for themselves Hmm. in the form perhaps of technology transfer or concessional finance. Hmm. Indeed, on the issue of ozone depletion, the developing countries actually managed to wangle fairly substantial transfer of finance and technology to themselves uh, through their collaboration, what was called the Montreal Protocol. Mm. So the question was the same thing possible in other global environmental issues, Mm. somewhat akin to what happened in the 1970s 
when the oil producing countries under the banner of OPEC hmm. actually traded their supplies of oil and fossil fuel products mm-hmm. and negotiated much better pricing than they had hitherto been able to achieve mm. so developing countries achieve something similar mm. i have seen over the last 25 years mm. that these same issues continue to be relevant even at the most recent glasgow conference of parties on climate change the same issues of technology transfer concessional finance came up so obviously there hasn't been a great deal of progress from the point of view of the developing countries so negotiation and strategy has been somewhat of a failure mm. but at the same time what is now emerging is that these countries will be uh, significant victims of some of these problems and now there's actually a much greater vested interest they have to cooperate mm. to find resolutions of these problems so it's going to be you know fraught with fair amount of tension hmm. on the one hand trying to negotiate better terms and conditions at the same time recognizing the longer you delay it hmm. the more you yourself will be a victim hmm. so very interestingly poised politics but hmm. in in 1996 this was sort of early days of some of these issues and so my book really looked at what was happening at that point of time right and and if you look at the political scenario and the thinking things really haven't changed there hasn't been much improvement in 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 the environmental conditions around us quite right in fact things have become much worse over time and now i think hmm. there is really a sense that these are emergencies hmm. in fact call it a climate emergency in many western countries hmm. so i i think there is an expectation that the world now needs to move much faster in finding solutions for these problems we don't have the luxury of time absolutely Bukun, did you not think about an academic career after your PhD? I mean, why did you join the corporate sector? I'm glad you did. But, uh... <laughs> well, uh, you know, when I was in Oxford from 1989 to 1994, hmm. this was the period when, as you know, India went through economic reforms, 1991 onwards. Yeah. And one was reading so much about how much had changed in India hmm. in that period of time. So sitting in the UK, hmm. uh, from afar, seeing... what people are writing about the changes in the indian economic system hmm. moving from a scarcity economy based largely on principles of socialism to much more of a free market hmm. uh, free enterprise based economy with all the changes that portended hmm. uh, i really wanted to investigate what had changed in india hmm. and so I, i gave myself two years to sort of test the waters and when i came back i interviewed with the tatas india's largest corporate house They had a program called the Tata Administrative Service, which grooms uh, managers and puts them on the fast track mm. to rise to leadership positions across the group. At the end of the first year of the Tata Administrative Service training program, I was placed in the office of the Tata Group Chairman, wow. the then Chairman Ratan Tata, and that sort of changed everything for me. It gave me huge exposure to all that was happening and changing in Tatas in India. and indeed because mr tata's significant international commitments across the world mm. and once one had tasted that exposure and experience uh, you know i really didn't feel the need to go back to the world of academia it was just so much fun i was learning so much in the corporate sector i decided to stay on oh that really must have been amazing i mean look at this if destiny wants you somewhere <laughs> then someone as amazing and as uh, large hearted and big minded as ratan tata himself enters the picture and says you young man you're going to be in my team <laughs> i mean you just entered the space with you know a magnifying glass and the curiosity of an academic i think and there you were working very closely at the tatas with mr ratan tata himself i mean amazing what was that experience like mukund it was a fantastic learning experience pavan we had a very small office that was servicing all of mr ratan tata's requirements hmm. and therefore as part of a very small office hmm. uh, one felt and one was indeed enormously empowered lots of responsibility on very young shoulders also it helped that ratan tata would travel extensively and therefore when he was out of the office the responsibility of keeping him informed about major developments in the group and in the country fell on me i was essentially his executive assistant and then his chief of staff mm. so one had the opportunity to see 
a number of issues at close proximity to work with him on identifying the solutions and being his messenger, conveying messages to key Tata Group and other external stakeholders. You saw a number of crises at close hand. Mm -hmm. You also saw a number of major business opportunities work out. And one in particular actually became a significant area of focus for me and a lot of my subsequent career. This was our involvement in the space of telecoms. And I ended up serving on the boards of all the major Tata telecom companies across mobility, fixed line and broadband services. So huge amount of learning, huge amount of empowerment, a tremendous sense of responsibility. Wow. And really working with the man himself, a thorough gentleman, it was uh, very, very exciting times. Uh, And for a young manager, you couldn't ask for anything better than that. Absolutely. I would assume that when the great man was traveling and needed to be informed of everything that was happening, you probably also started training yourself to think preemptively like, what will Mr. Tata now want to know about this aspect? I mean, it's a conditioning or training of the mind uh, saying, let me also at least, if not, you know, step in step with him, one step behind him. But I think it must have been a great conditioning for your strategic preemptive thinking, I think. You're so right, Pavan. Absolutely on the spot. And the better you can do your job by actually foreseeing what he's going to need, Hmm. the more it prepares you for leadership when the time comes for you yourself to rise up to those kinds of positions. Hmm. So it was an incredible opportunity to work with the head of India's largest corporate house to do all of this. The one issue that people sometimes remark about these kinds of roles and positions that you need to watch out for is you simply cannot let a sense of arrogance or Mm. a sense that you know it better than others get to you because that can be eventually counterproductive. It reduces your effectiveness as a good communicator. Somebody has to get Hmm. issues executed on behalf of your boss. Hmm. And some people sort of, when this goes to the head, the kind of power you enjoy, Hmm. it can become a problem for them later in life when they no longer have the umbrella or the patient hand of, of a powerful leader supporting them. So you need to be careful that you don't let this get to your head. You stay rooted to the ground. Uh, you're down to earth and you work well with people. Yeah, so if you can uh, get the right balance, I think uh, this can be a fantastic training ground hmm. for future uh, leadership responsibilities. Excellent, excellent. So very important is to always keep and retain your humility. I mean, just as the great man himself, you know. Absolutely. So Mukund, while you were working with uh, the Tatas, there were two years that you spent as managing director for one of the listed Tata telecom entities. And in your second book, The Brand Custodian, you say that uh, these were amongst the most enjoyable years of your working career. Why was that? So Babin, I think um, telecoms reflected an industry where you saw a number of very important factors defining in a sense, uh, the future of the entire economy. Uh, You had the role of technology. In fact, the kind of technologies we're using these days through broadband networks, for instance, a lot of that was just coming to play at that point of time. Mm. So the fast-changing nature of the sector, the intense competition that existed because of very aggressive players from Reliance and Airtel to multinationals like Vodafone. So one got to see sort of uh, the most exciting elements of competing in the marketplace uh, on the back of both fast-changing technology and fast-changing regulation because the government is also trying to keep in step with some of these changes and trying to then succeed in persuading the market to adopt your products and services. I think it was a fantastic uh, time to learn how to navigate business and how to be successful in India. The best part though, and the reason I enjoyed that part of my career perhaps the most, was interacting with colleagues. The workforce that we had in Tata's, uh, in the company that I was running for instance, was relatively young. I'd say on average the median age was just around 30. And the responsibility one had to motivate and encourage that workforce to aim high, 
to take on the challenges of some of the biggest and most competitive and aggressive players in the Indian market and emerge successful. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of uh, excitement, a lot of fun one had trying to do that. And I think we were fairly successful. Mm. And I myself was constantly learning on the job. I wasn't very old myself. Mm. I became a CEO before the age of 40. So trying to pull all this off <laughs> in a very competitive industry, uh, I think left me with a great sense of fulfillment and achievement. And as I said, the best part was interacting with so many people. Hmm. Remember, just before that, I'd worked with Ratan Tata in his office. And we had like five people who were part of my team. Hmm. And suddenly I was catapulted into this, into this job <laughs> as managing director. We had 3,000 people on a permanent roles. We had around 10,000 people who included feet on street and retail support. So very, very different kettle of fish. And uh, just testing myself in those circumstances with that kind of uh, competitive dynamics was uh, awesome and the friendships one created the kind of excitement we had about doing things together the teamwork that was so important to our success mm. all of that was a huge huge learning opportunity for me mm. and something i will never never forget absolutely and how could you ever fail i mean you were handpicked by the man one of the greatest uh, indian leaders of enterprise so obviously you know from a small office of six to how many hundreds of thousands of people across and then servicing and serving uh, large swaths of the Indian population was must have been very satisfying also. And then came a major transition, right? From telecoms, you moved into the world of uh, private equity, Mukund, and you set up the Tata Opportunities Fund, which was uh, the largest debut private equity fund out of India at that time. What was that transition like? Uh, again, full of learning and very enjoyable for that reason. Mm. One got an intimate view of the world of big money, mm. a world occupied by sovereign wealth funds on the one hand, managing the wealth of nations, and then mm. billionaires at the other end of the spectrum, ultra high net worth individuals. Mm. So we had both uh, sorts of investors in my fund. Mm. On the institutional side, we had investors like Temasek, Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund and Korea Investment Corporation, the South Korean Sovereign Fund. Mm. One also got to meet a bunch of US billionaires and mm. see how they conducted themselves. Mm. Uh, I remember attending the Berkshire Hathaway AGM as a guest mm. and watching Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger mm. handle their AGM with such great capability. And these guys were really on top of the subject. They had data at their fingertips. And this was when they were in their late 80s. Hmm. In fact, a few days back, I saw a video of this year's AGM. They're still going strong. Both are now in their 90s. Charlie Munger, I think, is 97. <laughs> and they're still as competent, as efficient as they were almost a decade and a half back. Wow. So clearly, these are people who work very, very hard to get where they are. Hmm. And that was a revelation and an inspiration for me. Hmm. And finally, in, in private equity, I had to equip myself with a team hmm. uh, that had much more experience in private employment than me. Hmm. And so I really learned how to work with these professionals, hmm. uh, how to leverage that analysis hmm. of good investment opportunities, because that is something that was totally new for me. Hmm. And in fact, that's something, Pavan, that I found in all my roles. Hmm. I've sought out the smartest people I could find, hmm. often people much smarter, with more experience than me, and I've relied on them to coach and guide me. Wonderful. And I think in today's world, you simply cannot pretend to be the master of any subject. Hmm. You need to accept that there will be deficiencies in your knowledge, in your information, in your capability. You need to be willing to work with teams of experts and seek solutions hmm. that independently you might each struggle to find, hmm. but collectively it becomes much easier for you to put together the answers and execute on programs. So private equity for me in that sense was again, huge amount of learning and very, very exciting times. We raised a $600 million fund as you rightly said, it was the largest debut private equity fund at that time. Hmm. And uh, it's done very well. So I've been very pleased with my learning from that entire experience. Excellent. Excellent. In fact, uh, one thing that you mentioned brought to my mind what Peter Mukherjee, whom I had the uh, privilege of working with, he used to be head of Star earlier and then he launched the INX group in India, uh, television channels. Brilliant man. And he used to say, you know, he used to say, Pawan, 
always try to find people who are better than you only then will you become a company of giants or you'll just remain pygmies and just what you said actually so uh, the role that you played then in the tatas as brand custodian that was something new so tell us more about this role and what it entailed so pavan this was a new role being created in the tata group for the first time mm-hmm. uh, it was really a role created on the basis that the tata's reputation and brand had really succeeded over the decades mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it was based on two pillars one the sense that this group would always give back to society yeah and second an expectation stakeholders have mm. that this group would behave ethically right and so as brand custodian uh, i had multiple roles one was of course mm. the responsibility for the tata corporate brand and the responsibility for communication with all stakeholders mm. but also i was asked to take on the role of chairman of the tata global sustainability council which had the remit to look at our sustainability activities including csr mm. and csr corporate social responsibility had just become a mandatory requirement under the indian companies act at that stage the other set of responsibilities was to do with ethical conduct mm. and i was made the chief ethics officer of the tata group mm. uh, in which capacity we also brought out for the first time after a long period of time changes in the tata code of conduct the entirely new code of conduct mm. so again very exciting uh, to be involved in crafting something new and different for the tata group mm. and roles that i'd never played in my life before had mm. uh, never been an ethics custodian mm. or uh, looking at csr and sustainability activities within the context of our businesses mm. and so that exposure again was something very important uh, imbued with a lot of learning for me mm. so Uh, it is also i think something that's quite unique but the tatas the fact that you would think of creating this kind of role which integrates all of these considerations which today now with this whole esg thematic you're seeing hmm. the best companies are now beginning to do hmm. in larger numbers so i think tatas in that sense hmm. were a pioneer and were trying to do something a little different at that point of time lovely you know the tatas are definitely respected as one of the if not perhaps the most ethical and you know principled entities in corporate india with an illustrious history of actually being emotionally really genuinely invested in the society and people who help them grow and giving back so what kind of updating or refreshing of the tata's code of conduct did you actually do i mean was it just a cosmetic update or what really did you have to change out there i mean one would have thought they would have had a really solid and i'm sure they did have a really solid uh, ethical code it's very interesting pavan uh, the first code of conduct was essentially a set of uh, sort of moses like commandments <laughs> on how employees shall behave and interestingly this was the 1998 code wow it also used language that today you would see is being politically very very incorrect okay because it it had a it is replete with he and him as if the tata group only had the male gender working for them mm mm-hmm. there was one set of as you described it cosmetic changes that happened actually in 2007 hmm. where all the he and him became gender neutral <laughs> uh, and, and uh, so also a very important change that happened in 2007 was one clause that had earlier committed uh, the tatas and their companies and their people hmm. to working in pursuit of the economic growth and development of india hmm. now changed in 2007-8 hmm. to working in pursuit of the economic growth and development of whichever market we served hmm. because in this period of time between 98 and 2007 hmm. tatas went from being almost entirely hmm. focused on the indian opportunity hmm. to becoming really a global giant correct with operations of companies like tcs hmm. uh, all across the world and acquisitions like jlr and chorus steel having taken place right um so those were the cosmetic changes and maybe slightly more fundamental change on the servicing of markets mm. but in 2015 we did a complete revamp of the code of conduct it is no longer moses speaking <laughs> to uh, the disciples 
it was a much more equitable conversational sort of casting of the code lots of illustrations of how employees could uh, expect uh, to deal with certain ethical dilemmas mm. uh, we understood that the workforce had become much younger and therefore uh, we had to adopt a much more equitable and conversational tone with them mm. uh, so the top down was out of the window it was much more as equals uh, and then you had a number of issues which hadn't really been reflected in the same fashion in the past mm. uh, take for instance the issue of whistle blowing mm. which is now by regulation also an important requirement mm. in codes of conduct mm. uh, we tried to bring a lot of that in mm. and really to make the code something that was a living document not just a piece of paper that told you do's and don'ts mm. but uh, that was something that explained why all of this is important in continuing your success as a well regarded corporate uh, we organized it by stakeholders again that was something that was missing earlier uh, so each stakeholder group could also understand both the promise of the group and the employees could understand the expectations from them in terms of responsibility to different stakeholders be it customers be it the government be it the natural environment hmm. uh, again issues that didn't exist let's say 1998 hmm. uh, environmental challenges for instance many of those now found reflection in the new code of conduct hmm. but these are dynamic documents right. and i think the best companies every few years you will see a constant updation or revamp hmm. even today uh, i dare say that there are issues such as lgbtq rights for instance hmm. issues around hmm. data privacy cyber security which perhaps were not there in the same kind of dimensions maybe 7 uh, or 8 years back so you'll have to keep updating this there will be a new social context in which these become uh, more or less relevant so you have to keep updating these documents and i think the 2015 document was benchmarked with some of our global peers but today probably it is going to be in need of again yet another revamp and refresh absolutely absolutely So the Tata's uh, Mukund seem to have uh, given you many new and exciting challenges through your career. What does that tell us about the Tata's and what does that tell us about you? <laughs> so <laughs> what does that tell about me? I think um, I have been blessed to have uh, multiple opportunities in many of which I had almost no experience. Mm. And therefore the point I made earlier about continuous learning mm. and willingness to surround yourself with people who are often much smarter and much more experienced and learning to work in teams to get the best out of a uh, collective rather than trying to individually achieve goals mm. and so i think in my case that openness to new exposure to learning new things is something that's been with me through my life mm. uh, even my masters and doctorate were in the space of political science and international relations very different from the bachelor's degree in engineering that i did at the iit So it's something that thankfully I've, I've sustained through my life and I've greatly benefited from. About the Tata's, I think uh, really it was their willingness to take bets on young talent mm. uh, and to take chances. And I think for a group as large as the Tata's, they could afford to take these kinds of chances. Uh, and it's great to see that the group would actually invest so much responsibility mm. in the hands of a pretty young manager like myself at different points of my career. uh with major business responsibilities major capital allocations in my hands mm. uh so i think the pioneering spirit of the tatas one of those dimensions is the willingness to entrust very significant responsibilities to young people and i think uh, the group has really shown itself and particularly ratan tata's uh, leader i think this is something he cared deeply about mm. and something i saw over and over again mm. in some of his uh, decisions and people appointments in the tata group mm. so uh, i think hats off to the group for being willing to take those risks mm. uh, and those gambles from time to time i don't think they are a risk taking gambling group in a positive way i say that <laughs> and uh, they would definitely uh, <laughs> they wouldn't kick anyone upstairs and i think you completely deserved all the responsibilities that you got and you delivered brilliantly on all of them and you said that you were blessed to be with them and yet you left the tatas in 2018 to start your own firm ecube in the esg space why did you 
want to leave them and you know and also tell me what does ecube do and how did this interest in esg come about so i think by 2018 at pretty much done whatever i could in the group had at uh, reached the heights that i probably dreamt about when i joined the tatas hmm. uh, including the senior most positions uh, in companies and also at the level of the group and the responsibility as the first brand custodian was a privilege which uh, hmm. i was really very very fortunate to be blessed with i think by 2018 one also started seeing that this whole new thematic of esg was going to become very very big in india hmm. and from just supporting one group and working in the context of thousands of tatas hmm. one saw the possibility of actually doing something much larger for the entire indian market corporate india hmm. not just the tatas hmm. there was one particular event which also gave me the confidence that striking out on my own uh, this was perhaps the right time to do it so this was in 2017 when i was still inside the group there was talk that the tatas would potentially close down the telecoms operation mm. and so some of my former colleagues approached me and asked if i could figure out a way for them to secure the jobs mm. and after some amount of uh, research and looking at the operations we came up with the strategy to actually protect all the jobs uh, but under a different ownership mm. uh, so i worked with a private equity firm and a canadian pension fund to put together a management buyout offer mm. which at that time i think was probably the largest buyout offer that india had seen it was a 1.3 billion dollar offer mm. to the tatas to take over mm. the broadband business mm. and with the uh, promise that all the jobs would be secured mm. for a variety of reasons that that offer eventually didn't go through mm. uh, but it was tabled and it was in fact reported widely in the media mm. it was constructed in the space of less than a month mm. and what it told me was the indian market is ready for good teams with a smart idea hmm. to be backed by large amounts of capital hmm. it's all there you just have to uh, have the right concept and be able to persuade the providers of capital that you have a good team that can execute and that gave me the confidence that if one stepped out from the shelter of the tatas hmm. one could actually pursue something very exciting and interesting hmm. uh, and backed by private capital okay so we created ecube in uh, 2018 19 hmm. uh, as the name suggests ecube is drawn from three e's uh, and really the byline was engage and empower for esg okay and really if you if you look at the way one would connect the dots Uh, from the time of my doctoral research in environmental politics uh, back in the 90s mm. to my responsibilities at Tata's as chair of the Tata Global Sustainability Council mm. uh, and chief ethics officer mm. uh, you can see this interest in all of these areas of ESG mm. and particularly in 2018-19 i felt that mm. climate change mm. and focus on good corporate governance mm. were going to be very very important drivers corporate success in india hmm. and given the experience one had okay. and the team one built around hmm. uh, oneself at ecube hmm. i felt there was so much that one could give back hmm. to corporate india and help corporate india prepare for the esg transition hmm. uh, and that's really what we're doing at ecube excellent so when you left the tatas after what would have been akin to half a lifetime in corporate in a corporate career <laughs> 23 or more years what did you take from there that has stood by you stood you in good stead attitudes qualities values and which of these began to grow sharply during your long association with the tatas i think two things are probably what would stand out for me mm. one is the focus on values uh, as as i've written in my book brand custodian hmm. you know the tatas was so focused on values i don't remember a single major speech which ratan tata gave as chairman for instance where the issue of values didn't come up as a very important component of that speech hmm. so it is something that the group truly believed in and it is something one took away as being very very important in the way you set yourself up in society hmm. Uh, the Tata founder there's a very famous quote of his which you'll see in many Tata offices and plants and so on uh, to the effect that in a free enterprise the community is not just another stakeholder in business 
but is in fact the very purpose of its existence. Wow. And so linking the success of the corporate mm. with the success of all stakeholders in society, mm. I think has been fundamental to the way in which the Tata brand has earned its trust. Brilliant. So that I think has been a, a, a hugely important mm. takeaway for somebody like me mm. in what I'm trying to do now and persuading corporate India that you need to carry your stakeholders with you, you need to build that equation of trust mm. uh, if you're going to be successful. Excellent. And I think the sense of the long term that uh, mm. uh, you have to think about where you are going to be, where your brand is going to be, mm. you know, out in time. It's not about the next quarter, mm. uh, but as it starters, people are fond of saying it's about the next quarter century. <laughs> so uh, that also gives you then the the resilience, the stamina to really think about success mm. over a period of time. If you look at some of the great starter success stories, mm. TCS and Titan, mm. uh, they didn't become successful overnight. It took them mm. many years, many decades of enterprise and effort mm. before they emerge successful as some of the best exemplars in their respective sectors. Exactly. Uh, TCS you know, started in the 60s essentially as a division of Tata Sons, but it wasn't till uh, the early 2000s when they were able to go through their IPO mm. that really they flowered and emerged as uh, a world beater in many respects. Similarly, Titan, mm. you know, when it started the jewelry operation, there was a period of time when it was at great risk of being shut down because it was too unprofitable. Mm. Uh, and now today, that same division accounts for maybe 80% of the top line and uh, bulk of the profits. Mm. So uh, I think that's the other learning that the long term is so important. Mm. It, if you have a view on the long term, mm. it gives you the stamina, the staying power to take a lot of short-term setbacks in your stride. Mm. But you need to have that vision mm. uh, to see out in time what is possible. Excellent. Mr. Antonato used to have this famous quote, you know, question the unquestioned. Mm. So always uh, remember that, you know, there's so much more to be done. Mm. There are ways of doing things that today may not be very evident. Mm. You have to constantly scrutinize the landscape, mm. question what is possible, mm. and set yourself long-term ambitions, not very short-term goals. Absolutely. Mukund, you recently authored your third book, Outlast, How ESG Can Benefit Your Business. What led you to write this book? And what are the key lessons you want to share with our audience from this book in brief? So, Pavan, you know, I wrote the book when, uh, like many of us, one was uh, stuck at home during the lockdown, uh, during COVID, mm. and uh, had time on one's hands. Mm. Uh, but importantly, I think the need or the urge to write the book mm. uh, related really to the sense that the pandemic was actually changing mm. the outlook of citizens mm. about sustainability, about ESG. Mm. And perhaps much faster than one had earlier anticipated, ESG was going to become a very important thematic impacting all kinds of stakeholders from customers to investors to the government and so on. And I thought it was therefore the right time to document a lot of my own research and sense of the subject, uh, which I'd been preparing for in the formation of my company mm. and share those learnings with a wider audience. And essentially, the book actually has a very simple premise. It suggests that a focus on ESG mm. can help businesses to build resilience, right. gain competitive advantage, mm -hmm. and achieve greater returns in the long term. Mm. At the long term, the point I made about the Tatas, for instance, uh, not in the short term, because in the short term, there are many different yeah. forces that can influence success. Mm. But if you want long-term success, mm. then ESG is the way to go. And therefore, the title Outlast, how do you outlast your competition? It is by taking this agenda very seriously. Lovely. So that was really the idea of writing the book to persuade mm. Indian managers, professionals, people in society, uh, civil society hmm. that ESG is here to stay. Hmm. It's a very important driving force of change. Hmm. Issues around the environmental agenda such as climate change hmm. are going to be transformational for the economy. Hmm. And I think all of us collectively have to understand how this is going to change the world we live in, hmm. not after a generation, but in our lifetimes within the next decade. 
and this is upon us mm-hmm. so the idea was really to instill a sense of urgency mm-hmm. and to suggest that if we don't find the answers to some of these challenges very quickly mm-hmm. companies that fail to do so are at risk of essentially being left behind mm-hmm. and potentially vanishing from the corporate landscape no different from the last time we had such a major change in india which was around the 1991 economic reforms many of the household names of that time are no longer with us because they couldn't keep step with the changes in the forces of competition including the entry of foreign competitors into the indian market and this time around will be no different companies that fail to keep pace with the changes that stakeholders expect will be left behind or will indeed lose out in the race to success absolutely mukund very very true and i love the whole concept of outlast it's actually a strategic guidance for every entity that is serious about itself and its own role and its commitment to the society and the people and the economy and the ecology that helps them grow very very important so uh mukund some young graduate with a with an mba or whatever comes into your office at ecube and says dr rajan i want to work with you what will you look for in that person and what will be a deal breaker for you the absence of <laughs> so let me tell you a small story and then I'll, i'll give you the answer to your question okay uh, when i walked into ratan tata's office when he first offered me a job to work with him hmm. uh, i told him uh, that i didn't have an mba hmm. because what i did have was a btech a masters and a doctorate but not an mba i knew nothing <laughs> about business management per se what did he say and mr ratan tata's answer to me mm-hmm. was you don't need an mba to be successful in business you just need good common sense <laughs> and so Paul that stayed with me my entire life and i think it was spot on mm. you could learn so much on the job mm. and more importantly you learn so much over a period of time mm. working with teams working with people mm. and because technology because the information access that people have is just changing and improving so much it's so dynamic mm. it's actually quite likely that stuff that you learned you know 5 10 15 years back is no longer relevant right. so what you instead need is an attitude of continuous learning mm-hmm. and being willing to surround yourself with people who will be experts and therefore mm-hmm. more informed more competent than you perhaps mm-hmm. and you cannot be nervous about that you have to learn to work in teams and extract the best from your colleagues right so turning to your question about what one looks for in in young people mm. i think it's really that i wouldn't really care much about whether the person had an mba or not mm. uh, since i don't have one it doesn't matter to me but what i would look for is curiosity mm. uh, instinct to uh, keep learning to be interested in the world mm. uh, not just in space small specific niches but to show mm. a broad sense of interest and excitement hmm. about what is changing around us and in the future hmm. uh, and the willingness to work with people so hmm. you want somebody who has a temperament that seems to suggest that they will be able to work with others hmm. they're not terribly opinionated they understand that there may be many things on which they don't know all there is to be known hmm. they're not experts hmm. and therefore there is an openness hmm. to seek out help hmm. and to that extent humility to understand that hmm. you are never going to be the expert of of any subject right and to try and trust your views on others may actually create a problem because you may end up forcing a solution that is not the optimal solution right so those are the qualities one would look for in a young person hmm. openness willingness to learn willingness to be liberal in their thinking hmm. about what is possible uh, and a curiosity about the world and about the future hmm. i think those would be very very important qualities one would try and test in conversation so lovely mukund thank you very much indeed dr mukund rajan chairman of vcube investment advisors i have truly enjoyed this conversation very insightful and i'm sure a lot of learnings for everybody young or you know old or whoever whatever age group uh what did you think of our chat so far mukund 
Well, I thought the questions that you asked, Pavan, were terrific, very insightful questions. You've obviously done a whole lot of research. But what I'm more hopeful about is that for your audience, particularly younger members of your audience, mm. these and I'm sure many other podcasts uh, through the Master's Voice podcast you carry out mm. would offer learnings mm. uh, and a sense of the future that they should prepare themselves for. I know that when I was a youngster uh, in India growing up, we had very limited opportunities mm. and the world was a, a place where you had a lot of anxiety about the future. Correct. For today's youngsters, I think there's a wealth of opportunity, much more than we had in our times when we were growing up. Hmm. And yet there would be some of the same anxieties about what kind of career, what kind of job, uh, where you need to really express your personality is the best. Hmm. And I think it's through these kinds of interactions that you can pull out the learnings hmm. from people who've been there and done that. And hopefully there's something that the audience can take away. So hats off to you for organizing this set of uh, shows and really getting uh, some very interesting people to really unburden all of their learnings <laughs> and their own personal journeys in a very effective manner. Congratulations and well done. Thank you very much, Mukund. Actually, you know, generous and enlightened souls like you, they don't unburden, they willingly and very happily share just as you've done. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, but you're a, you're a very self-effacing person and uh, very disarmingly so too, I must say that. Thank you. It's very kind of you, Pavan. Thank you, Dr. Mukundrajan. Thank you ever so much. Dr. Mukundrajan, Chairman of Equip Investment Advisors, was my distinguished guest on this very special episode of MVP, the Master's Voice podcast on MediaBrief.com. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I loved bringing it to you. Till we meet again in the next episode of The Master's Voice, the podcast series on MediaBrief.com. This is your host and friend, Pavan Archavala, saying, take care, stay safe, bye-bye.